On November 24, 1971, a man likely in his mid-40s who called himself Dan Cooper walked into the airport in Portland, Oregon, wearing a suit with a black clip-on tie and purchased a one-way ticket with Northwest Orient Airlines to fly to Seattle, Washington via Flight 305. Once on board the flight, he ordered a bourbon and soda and sat patiently waiting for the plane to take off. Around 3 p.m. local time, he slipped a note to the stewardess, something they were accustomed to receiving by men, assuming they'd have any interest in them whatsoever because, you know, women love being hit on at work, especially trapped thousands of feet in the air in an environment where we can't avoid you at all. And so because she was likely used to this sort of unwanted flirtation, she pocketed the note without looking at it. Mr. Cooper stopped her and told her that she really needed to look at the contents of that note. The note said that he had a bomb in his briefcase and that she in fact needed to sit with him to write something down. To show his sincerity, he cracked his briefcase open ever so slightly and showed her a wad of wires and red-colored sticks and encouraged her to sit down once again and write down what he was asking her to. She obliged. The note he had her write was asking for $200,000 in $20 bills and four parachutes. Just for a frame of reference, $200,000 today would be closer to $1.2 million. As the weather turned windy and rainy, the pilot circled the airport in Seattle, Washington, until he could safely land. Cooper allowed the 36 passengers to get off of the flight after receiving the cash and the four parachutes. A few members of the flight crew were to remain behind with him. What was next? Well, a flight to Mexico City, seemingly where Cooper was planning to hide out. He demanded that the pilot fly at the slow rate of 250 miles per hour and the minimum height for the aircraft with the flaps down, something the pilots weren't even sure the Boeing 727 would be capable of. As fate would have it, though, nearing 8 p.m., five hours after the skyjacking began, Cooper asked the flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, who was the passenger, who was in the passenger section of the plane with him, to go into the cabin and not come out. A few moments later, around 8.12, as the plane soared somewhere between Seattle, Washington and Reno, Nevada, over an area known as the Dark Divide, the pressure changed in the cabin. The pilot, Captain Bill Rodacek, radioed to air traffic control that he believed their friend had taken leave of them. Cooper had taken two of the chutes and jumped out of the plane. The money? He tied the bag shut with a cord from one of the other parachutes. It's speculated that he wanted four just to give the illusion that he was going to take hostages with him so that they would be sure to give him functioning parachutes. As for the pilots and the crew, they landed safely, but Cooper was never found, dead or alive, and most of, if not all of the stolen money, the ransom money, has never been accounted for. I'm your host, Catherine, and this is Murder and Mediumship. This missing person's case is a bit different, if you haven't already noticed, as the villain is the missing, and in the 50 years since his crime was committed, he's become a sort of legend, a folk hero, an elusive mystery to solve, or as one documentarian put it, a sentence without an end. Someone has to finish it. Before we jump into the rest of the story of D.B. Cooper, I do want to remind everyone that readings are open and from now until Halloween, you can book with code SPOOKYSEASON for 15% off. Not only that, but the Intuitive Development 101 class begins this Wednesday, October 19th at 11.30 a.m. 
This is likely the last one of 2022. It runs for six weeks, and in it, we cover the basics of connecting to spirit, protecting your energy, releasing any fear you have over connecting, strengthening your intuition, and overall learning to trust it a bit more. You do not have to desire to work as a professional intuitive to take this class. Understanding your intuition is something that will help you in your day-to-day life, no matter what your career path is. Class cost is on a sliding scale basis, and the lowest entrance of the class is $99. You pay what you can afford. For those of you who have already taken this entry-level basics class with me, though, or if you really have with anyone else, then the newest Patreon tier is right up your alley, intuitively aligned, both basic and premium. The basic level includes everything the Patreon community already receives, the weekly oracle card reading, guidance at the beginning of the month for what's to come energetically, a weekly journaling prompt, access to our Discord server, I'm loving having that available, and a monthly hour-long psychic practice circle. This month's will be on Wednesday, October 26th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The days of the week and the times will change so that we can best accommodate everyone. These will not be recorded, so if you miss it, you miss it. And the premium level of Intuitively Aligned includes all of that plus the exclusive live-streamed episode with the Q&A after, and both of these tiers have limited access, unlike the rest, in order to keep the circle smaller and more intimate. That was a lot. So back to Cooper. I have to be honest too, this was on my list for a long time, but with how heavy so much of the ongoings in this world have been lately, I decided to pull one for this week that had mystery, but no murder and no gore or no mourning to speak of, just a good old-fashioned mystery. So let's get back into it. The FBI had alerted was had been alerted while they were on the plane, still in the air en route to Seattle from Portland. They immediately opened an investigation known as Norjack for Northwest hijacking, and it remained open until 2016, if you can believe that. Immediately following the safe landing of the pilot and the flight attendants, police sketch artists began working with the two flight attendants. I believe they were in different cities as well, so one went all the way to land with the pilot and had stayed on board with Cooper, and the other had stayed in Seattle. So different artists in different cities with two different women were interviewed separately, They created nearly identical sketches of who was being referred to as Dan Cooper or the Skyjacker. They both described him as being about 5'10", between 5'10 and 6 feet tall, and weighing somewhere around 170 to 180 pounds, in his mid-40s with brown eyes. Others who had come into contact with him had given very similar descriptions. The media was in an absolute frenzy over the skyjacking. When the flight initially landed, People who were on board didn't even know that their plane was being hijacked. They were getting off seeing reporters asking them questions, and it was the first they were hearing that there was even an emergency on the plane. And evidently, skyjackings weren't very uncommon in the 70s. I was hearing on one of the documentaries that I had watched that it happened almost weekly. Remember, there weren't really security protocols nearly like there are today. I mean, nothing like today. I don't even think you needed an ID to fly. It was more or less walking into a McDonald's and ordering a cheeseburger. It was that easy. So Dan Cooper became D.B. Cooper when someone lacking the desire to proofread accidentally printed his name as D.B. Cooper and that stuck. Being that it sounded way more badass than Dan, it's also been speculated that the name Dan Cooper came from a French comic book series that was wildly popular at the time of the skyjacking, where the cover featured a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot, Dan Cooper, jumping out of a plane. 
This led a lot of investigators, both amateur and professional, to believe that the hijacker must have spent time overseas in France to have known about this comic. As light broke the next morning and the windy, rainy weather subsided, authorities began their air searches, looking for his parachute stuck in the trees. Hundreds of troops took to the woods near Woodland and in the town of Ariel, Washington. Truly, though, because the wind that night, the FBI wasn't entirely sure of where to begin their search, as he really could have been pushed to a distance from the flight path, and even the plan that the plane was supposed to be on may not have been precisely the course that it took because of how strong the wind was that night. So many variables made it hard to discern even where to start, making looking for a needle in a haystack seemingly easier in comparison than finding their criminal. Hundreds of people were interviewed, but authorities seemed to be able to get absolutely nowhere. The days turned into weeks, which turned into months, years, and decades. It's been over 50 years since the infamous skyjacking known as the only successful one in the United States to ever be completed. Five years into the investigation, over 800 people had been considered suspects, and the FBI had worked relentlessly to eliminate all but two dozen of them. And just for an aside here, I think it's worth mentioning that this isn't, there wasn't a database like there is today where you could easily access criminal records in, in like, not that it's all that simple today either, but it, it wasn't nearly as accessible to receive information between different um, agencies and to communicate in the way that they do or have the ability to do if they chose to today. So this was real work. This was flipping through fingerprints. This was making the phone calls and not just typing things into a computer. This was real footwork that these detectives were doing. They had a description of him. They had the police sketches. And they had his clip-on tie that he had left behind, as well as the knowledge that of the four parachutes he had used the cord from one to tie the money bag shut, left one completely behind, and took two with him. One of those chutes was for training purposes and wasn't operational as it was sewn shut. The other we can only assume worked, but we don't know how that situation played out for him after leaving the plane, only 250 feet above the ground. We also know that these parachutes couldn't be steered and that his suit that he wore with his loafers weren't exactly ideal for jumping out of an aircraft in wind and rain in the dead of night. But in 1980, an eight-year-old boy, Brian Ingram, was on the banks of the Columbia River about five miles northwest of Vancouver, Washington, and he found a rotting package full of $20 bills totaling about $5,800 and the serial numbers on them actually matched the serial numbers of the ransom money given to D.B. Cooper that night, years ago. If this was actually part of the ransom money, then where was the rest of the cash? Nothing else was ever found, and so far, nothing more has come of this discovery. In 2007, Seattle Special Agent Larry Carr took over the D.B. Cooper case, and it's so just like mind-numbing to me that they're still investigating this in 2007. They're still putting money into investigating this case all those years later. Anyway, he also believed that the name Dan Cooper had come from the French comic books, lending to the idea that Cooper must have spent time overseas, and according to Carr, likely because of service in the Air Force. Carr believed that whoever Cooper really was probably was a cargo loader on airplanes, how he would have acquired his knowledge of the very young aviation industry. According to Carr, working in the cargo area meant that Cooper would have been required to wear a parachute in the event that he ever fell out of the plane, but that he wouldn't really have been trained on how to use it 
in an event kind of like the one that uh, Cooper went through jumping out of the plane in the dead of the night. He would have been trained to use it had he fallen out of the plane to pull the cord and basically attempt to survive. But again, nothing like that night on November 24th, 1971. The profile went on to state that Cooper likely was from the East Coast, didn't know anyone out on the West Coast, and therefore no one came forward to report him missing in the event that he didn't survive the jump, which Carr adamantly believes there's no way he could have survived it. And then again, in 2016, the FBI decides to finally end their investigation and reallocate resources to focus on other investigative priorities, which lit a fire in average people like you and me to see if they could solve the mystery of D.B. Cooper. I believe that Carr actually found the comic book connection from an online group known as Citizen Sleuths and reached out to them to help revive the investigation into the case. The Citizen Sleuths were composed of paleontologist Tom Kay, an illustrator, a, metallur a metallurgist, a Cooper researcher, and Brian Ingram, the eight-year-old little boy who had found the bag of money, but all grown up now. They're working to use electron microscopes to identify the pollen on D.B. Cooper's tie to see if it came from anywhere specific within the country, testing for metals on the tie, among other things to solve the mystery. The citizen sleuths have a lot of unanswered questions, as do many of the, quote, Cooperites, as they have come to be called. For example, was the money that was found by Ingram buried just after Cooper's jump, or did it float there over time? What happened to the rest of the money? He couldn't have had help on the ground as he had originally asked to go to Mexico City, but then jumped out not long after departing Seattle, Washington, clearly nowhere near Mexico City, not to mention that having a helper on the ground would have required extremely careful coordination and control over situations he couldn't have guaranteed he could control. And even if all of that had gone according to some grand plan that no one is giving him credit for, then all of it could have been ruined by the fact that there was thick ground cover that night. You couldn't see the ground through the clouds. Over 50 years later, the public is no closer to figuring out who D.B. Cooper really was. And given his age being around his mid-40s at the time, it's getting less and less likely that Mr. Cooper will be around to pin the crime on, even if it were solved. Who has been considered a suspect, though? Really want to go over a few of them and cover a few more in length. Authorities looked at Ken Christensen, an employee of Northwest Oregon Airlines, and Sheridan Peterson, an employee of Boeing. Both ruled out for a number of technical reasons. Then there was Barb Dayton. Barb at the time would have been known by what is now her dead name, Bobby Dayton. The way she's been described, Bobby was a rough and tumble, hard ass, and Barb was a gentle librarian, adoring, quiet, and absolutely lovely. Bobby was a merchant marine who was trained to jump out of aircraft, but regardless of training, there was no concrete evidence to support Barb Dayton being D.B. Cooper, and so nothing ever came of it. House favorite, Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. fought in Vietnam and was an expert parachuter. Surely he could jump out of a plane in the pitch dark and survive, maybe even only wearing loafers in a business suit. He even was guilty of hijacking another plane roughly six months after the D.B. Cooper heist. Witnesses insisted it wasn't him, though, as he didn't even come close to matching the police sketches. And again, a lot of people gave very similar descriptions of the man who is now known as D.B. Cooper. So to not match the sketch really, truly matters. And we had Dwayne Weber, a deathbed confessor. He looked a lot like the second sketch of Cooper, and he was found to be living a double life. One as an insurance salesman and the other as a career criminal with 16 arrests. Still, nothing concrete could tie him to this specific hijacking. 
to cover every single suspect that an internet sleuth or even law enforcement seriously looked at would be a series in and of itself. In 1980 at a party, a man named Dick Briggs confessed to a friend, Ron Carlson, that he was D.B. Cooper. And I want to say right here and now that if you're openly confessing at parties, right there, I'd be suspicious that you were in fact not D.B. Cooper. However, Dick Briggs was more than just a random stranger to Ron Carlson. He was his cocaine supplier. So, you know, that makes it more solid and believable. <clears throat> anyway, Briggs told Carlson that in a matter of three days, a family who was also in attendance at the party, who he then pointed out to Carlson, that family was going to find some of the ransom money. The child who was at the party was none other than Brian Ingram. And three days after Carlson was told they'd find the money, there was Brian Ingram and his family on the news, having found $5,800 in $20 bills near the Columbia River. So did Briggs plant the money? How did he know it would be there? Carlson relayed all of this to a man who filmed infomercials, who then got in touch with his buddy and they together hired a lie detector administrator to sit down and hook Carlson up to a lie detector to tell his story again. No indication of deceit was given. Personally, though, I believe that Briggs believed his own story and therefore, I'm sorry, Carlson believed his own story and therefore no deceit would have been detected. The more that was uncovered about Dick Briggs, the more it didn't fit that he could have been D.B. Cooper. It turned out that he had lied to Carlson about being in Vietnam and in fact avoided going to Vietnam at all costs. He was not a parachuter and even at a very basic level, his physical appearance was enough to eliminate him as a real possibility. Briggs was short, stocky, and muscular, where Cooper was tall and thin. Their faces may have been similar, but that's all they really shared in this story. He does, however, remain a popular theory among Cooperites. Now we get into some of my favorites, though. The more I dove into this character, the more I could be convinced that any of them were the real D.B. Cooper. But I have an idea of who I believe it was, and I do believe it is someone named in this episode. Some Cooperites began to theorize that D.B. Cooper had a partner in crime. Maybe not someone who was waiting at the landing site, but someone who was possibly involved in the orchestration of the skyjacking. Jeffrey Gray, author of Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper, wrote about how Dick Briggs could have had a partner. And that partner was Robert Rackstraw. Rackstraw not only looked like D.B. Cooper, but he also possessed the skills to be D.B. Cooper. Authorities even confirmed his extensive criminal background as well as his possession of innumerable fake IDs. He was even held by the FBI in solitary confinement for his own protection from 1978 to 1979. They were unable to pin the skyjacking on him, but he was absolutely a favorite suspect. He was a paratrooper in 1969 in Vietnam, and according to others he served with, he was an adrenaline junkie constantly seeking the thrill and even wrote on his enlistment papers that he was interested in flying and jumping out of aircraft. While in Vietnam, he volunteered for a mission that would come to be known as Project Left Bank, a mission that most tried to avoid as they were unlikely to come back alive. The contents of the mission at the time were very secret. He did come back from that flying mission and was eventually transferred to the Army Aviation Training Center in Rucker, Alabama, where they found that a number of his military records were actually falsified. While he had taken part in the secretive mission, he still elaborated and invented more glorious achievements for his record. And after being disciplined for domestic violence in 1970, coupled with his falsified documents, Rackstraw was discharged in 1971, having served only a short time. 
When law enforcement made any move to prosecute or to move forward with their investigation with Rackstraw, though, it seemed to be shut down over and over again. According to Rackstraw, he had worked for the CIA as an operative in Iran, working for helicop- working on helicopters for Bell Helicopter in the 1970s. And it's very possible that the CIA told the FBI they couldn't prosecute him if Rackstraw had higher knowledge of the things the government wouldn't want being leaked to the public. What really shook me about him as a suspect, though, was the death of his stepfather. Rackstraw had gone into business with his stepdad, and when they seemed to be at odds over the ways that they desired to conduct business, his stepdad disappeared. And Rackstraw told everyone that that stepdad had basically gone to Hawaii, just simply decided to go to Hawaii and up and left. Except that he was eventually found with a single bullet hole to the back of his head, buried on family property. And as far as I know, nothing ever came of this death investigation either. So could it have been Rackstraw? Could he have killed his stepfather and was also D.P. Cooper, just protected by the government? With this being such a widely publicized and speculated case, I decided to do something I don't do very often, and that's go to Reddit to see what theories I could drum up from Cooper Sleuths. As always, Reddit did not disappoint. More recently in 2018, William J. Smith was identified as a suspect in an Oregon newspaper known as The Oregonian. Adding a twist to this story, the man who drummed him up as a suspect chose to remain anonymous, as at the time was an active duty data analyst for the U.S. Army. I suppose he still could be active duty today, but we don't know who he is. He was drawn to the case early in 2018, and like many others, fell down the rabbit hole of who was D.B. Cooper. He narrowed in on one comment in particular that was made by Cooper to the flight attendant on the night of the skyjacking. She asked him, do you have a grudge against Northwest? To which he responded, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. His theory stems from one that had been previously explored by Max Gunther, the author of D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened. According to the Argonian, in 1972, Gunther had been contacted by a man claiming to be D.B. Cooper. But after just a few brief interactions, the man cut off all contact until about a decade later when his wife, Clara, got in touch with Gunther, telling him that her now late husband, Dan LeClaire, was the man who had been in touch with him 10 years earlier. The information that they exchanged was ultimately what became his book. The book has been widely criticized, though, by Cooperites and even by the FBI agent who was interviewed for it. Most refer to it as practically fiction, as it dives into the love affair of Dan LeClaire and his wife as well as the actions of him as D.B. Cooper. For the analyst, though, something about LeClaire stuck out to him, and so borrowing details from Gunther's book and from FBI files that were released in 2017, the analyst was able to find one Dan Clare, a World War II Army veteran who passed away in 1990. The analyst gave all of his information over to the FBI, writing to them stating that he was an Army officer and a data analyst and that he wasn't some crazy Cooperite that his information was something that could be backed and that he could show them and probably provide proof of. While he waited to hear back, he continued to dig, and as he dug, he found a connection that shifted his belief from Claire being Cooper to a friend of Claire's, William J. Smith, who had passed away in January of that year. For whatever reason, as he was looking through Smith's high school yearbook, he found a list of alumni who had been killed in World War II, and one of them was named Ira Daniel Cooper. Could this have been where the skyjacker took the name Dan Cooper from? Remember that the media began calling Dan Cooper DB, 
It wasn't what he initially told the flight attendant his name was. He had introduced himself as Dan Cooper. And I think we all know that Dan Cooper obviously wasn't his true identity. However, the nature of the relationship between Claire and Smith is even more interesting. They worked together at various train yard stations along the East Coast and became good friends in the 1960s. Smith had a military background as well, but he served in the U.S. Navy. The grudge that Cooper told the flight attendant of could have been from the Penn Central Station filing bankruptcy, which laid off thousands of employees and jeopardized the pensions of most of the employees. According to the analysts, two of them were likely angry at the corporate establishment, and I really can't say that I blame them. According to the flight path of the hijacked Boeing 727, anywhere Smith could have jumped from along the way would likely have landed him within five to seven miles of a railroad track, and that the track ran parallel to Interstate 5, which could have been visible from the air. I know we already said that the clouds, the wind, the rain, the pitch darkness of the sky, all of that made visibility almost non-existent, so I'm not sure if this is accurate or not, but the analyst theorizes that either one of them, though it was likely Smith, could have jumped from that plane and landed without harm to themselves because of their military training, and would have easily found railroad tracks where because of their extensive work in the rail yards could have jumped a freight train back to the East Coast with the ransom money. I think what's interesting and what kind of came to me as I was recording right now is that perhaps he told them he wanted to go to Mexico City just to buy himself enough time on that flight path to kind of have a little wiggle room and when he would jump, that he would be able to maybe see the road at one point and that's when he would jump, or he'd be able to see the tracks and that's when he would jump. And he decided that at that exact time, that's when he was going because he could see ahead of him a little bit or, or something like that. I think there's a lot of of guesswork involved here, but I wonder if Mexico City was just the ultimate destination if he didn't find a good place to jump. He believes that, the analyst believes that Smith had originally contacted Gunther under the guise of being Claire, and that his wife Dolores, who furthered the conversation after Smith had decided once and all to tell, once and for all to tell his story. Smith is in fact the spitting image of the sketches of D.B. Cooper. The analyst carries on to point out that even Claire retired at age 54, which is only interesting because he never worked more than low-level jobs throughout his adult life. So where did the money come from to retire? I mean, that in and of itself is curious. When I tell you, once you start diving into this, you cannot stop. I found that the citizen sleuths also had the clip-on tie that Cooper had left behind tested for various residues. They found that it contained microscopic particles of metals such as titanium, aluminum, bismuth, and stainless steel, which had previously been assumed would have come from working on planes for Boeing. But as the analyst pointed out, all of these metals would have been present working maintenance on trains or in the rail yard in general. The tie would have been worn by a yardmaster or a manager, which Smith in fact was. Gunther's book, released years before the FBI files were made public, goes on to place Leclerc, who we later realize is actually Smith, at a skydiving facility near L.A. in the summer of 1971. When the FBI files were released in 2017, it was shown that the FBI believed the skyjacker had likely visited Ellis Shore Skydive Center in L.A. in 1971. This information was previously unknown publicly, so how did Gunther get it? Coincidence? The FBI never responded to the Army officer. To be fair, he wrote in saying that he was an officer for the U.S. military and that he didn't want to jeopardize his career or anything like that. So he wrote in anonymously, I believe. And that probably just sends off a little bit of crazy 
um, crazy cues to law enforcement, I'm guessing. Finally, the deathbed confessions. We already talked about Dwayne Weber, but in 2014, Army paratrooper and self-proclaimed government spy Walter Recca confessed to his niece, Lisa Story, and his best friend, Carl Lauren, that he was in fact D.B. Cooper. Of course. Lauren released a book entitled D.B. Cooper and Me, A Criminal, A Spy, My Best Friend. The sweetest title. Cooper and Recca were both members of the Michigan Parachute Club. He claimed to have audio recordings of phone conversations with Recca that provide details about the skyjacking that wouldn't have been made public at the time either. Both Lauren and Story allege that they have evidence that supports Recca's confession, including documentation showing how he spent most of the $200,000. And of course, the publishing company of Lauren's book, Principia Media, backs up his claims. Even more compelling, though, Michigan State Police Officer Joe Koenig believed that with the amount of information that Lauren and Story came forward with, if Recco were still alive, they would have likely prosecuted him. Others, who we won't get into into more detail, like Dwayne Weber and also college professor William Gossett, made deathbed confessions claiming to D.B. Cooper. So who was D.B. Cooper? Will the mystery ever be solved? This is something I haven't done in a while, and intuitively, I love that I get to share that for this one, intuitively, I'm I'm stuck. I have gone back and forth a million times during reading this. It has made my brain spin to read all of this information. Um, I do want to say, though, I've had a couple of my intuitive friends pulling Rekka's name from a list. I feel that Smith is the most likely suspect. I love a good story, though, so perhaps that's why I'm drawn there. But if you're part of the Investigate tier, I'll see you on the 24th for the Patreon-exclusive episode. And if you haven't hopped on Patreon to drop your request for this episode, then head over to the app and drop your request. I'm going to be choosing from those this week. Thank you all for listening, and come back Wednesday for another episode of the Coffee and Conjuring segment.